Occupy Wall Street and what happens when you screw up anarchist praxis. And we'll also talk about worker co-ops. My name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo. How about we get started now? Hey, Byron, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and you? I am fantastic. Today we got a little bit of a heavy topic, don't we? Oh, yes. Yes, we do. So we are just kind of basically discussing anarchist praxis done wrong, possibly by liberals. Yeah, uh, especially when it comes to the, the specific topic we're going to be talking about, kind of the, the elephant in the room of the left, I, I would like to say. Ooh, what is that elephant? I don't see an elephant. <laughs> um, just the the legacy of Occupy, of Occupy Wall Street, specifically. It's what we're talking about. Oh, yes. The legacy of Occupy. All right, so before we get into what the legacy is, what's a 30-second rundown? What was the phenomenon known as Occupy Wall Street? Well, Occupy Wall Street was uh, this kind of movement um, that began on, I think it was September of 2011. I, I remember because I was still in uh, I was still in high school at the time, <laughs> so I'm dating myself. Um, it was this kind of uh, it was started out by weirdly enough this like Canadian like uh, like protest group uh, that like called for a protest. It was like, okay, we're gonna occupy. Um, I think it was Zuccotti Park. Um, in New York, which is like right, which is like in the Wall Street area, um, we're gonna occupy it as long until until like these kind of vague, let's be honest, vague uh, demands are met. Um, and it was generally like anti, very much like a social equality, economic uh, equality um, against corporate corruption. Um, basically, like uh, very much like left, like what would you would imagine like a left liberal would like talk about? Like that was their their goals. Um, that's actually where the 99% uh, kind of and 1%, which is like uh, like phrasing kind of uh, came about actually um, in a in weird replacement of like the workers and the capitalists because that was considered too scary. So they uh, very consciously, like I'm, I'm pretty sure it was very, it's like whoever made it up was very conscious of the fact that they replaced it with 99 and 1%. Um, but yeah, it, it, it ended up, you know, spiraling out into this big movement. Like there was occupations here in Orange County, like in Irvine, um, they even tried doing it in Santa Ana. Um, it spread out like throughout the country, but at the end of the day, uh, the camps were eventually um, like forced. Like they, they were eventually evicted from the camps. Um, any evidence, like physical evidence, at the sites were destroyed. Like they threw all the tents in the trash, um, and kind of it just kind of had, like, like most like most protest movements, it disappeared uh, as fast as it began. 
So that sucks, to be honest. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Within this legacy of this movement, what were some positive things that came about? Oh, probably the biggest one that if you ask anyone who actually like takes this like takes it seriously about analyzing Occupy, um, it's just like they reintroduced class into like the, the national discourse. Like before then, like class wasn't really a big thing. Like the only time you would hear about class um, was like Republicans uh, accusing Democrats of class warfare or whatever. Um, even though like that's been the truth since the founding of capitalism or, or hell the founding of history. Um, but uh, it, it reintroduces lexicon of okay, there's a minority that controls the economy, and there's a majority that actually do that actually does the work that actually buys everything but doesn't get any of the profits. Like it kind of very much is kind of very watered down notion of the worker and the capitalist. Um, and it reintroduced that into the common lexicon. That's why like, uh, if you ever go to a protest, there's like always 99% uh, stuff everywhere. Um, it, it's why like Bernie Sanders, it's probably, it probably helped like reignite that spark that made Bernie Sanders campaign criticize it for what it is. Um, but it made it possible um, without Occupy, none of that, like we'd probably still be like the left would still probably be like nowhere without it. Um, you know, things happen and fail, but we, we, there are, there are always positives to things. At least so, there's always silver linings. So that's probably the first one. Um, secondly, it, it, it's off. It's really a kind of a learning experience for the left. Uh, like a lot of the people who were in Occupy moved on to other things. Um, they moved into, they created or joined organizations um, they, uh, learned about like, okay, what works, what didn't work, uh, why didn't it work? Um, like what's, what's it like, you know, dealing with, uh, the press, what's it like, um, how, how to deal with public relations, how to deal with like, hell, just managing a camp. So I, I would say those are probably the two big positives for the left. So it brought class back into the conversation and actually built better organizers. Yes, because they learned from all the mistakes. All right. Well, you said it. What were some of the mistakes? Uh, so the first mistake was it was like from the beginning, um, it was a very liberal movement. Uh, it was filled with liberals. Like it was like there was a uh, general assemblies. Uh, there was like very much direct action, but like, but the problem was like – so it was very much anarchist praxis. Like if you ask any anarchist how they would like do a movement, like this this is generally how they would go about it. Um, but the problem was it was a bunch of liberals and it kind of held – it kind of like tied the hands behind the movement's back. Um, these liberals were uh, not only like – like their demands were vague. Uh, the demands were vague. It was like, oh, we should do something about income inequality. It's like, OK, but like – be specific, uh, or like, or, or or demands that are so huge we have to fundamentally restructure society, um, or or other kind of stuff like that, where it just didn't make any real sense for like an occupation movement, um, especially one the, on a relatively small scale compared to others. Um, like it, it, the liberals would always because just the sheer numbers and the fact that people had no political education, um, they thought that the left, the most left wing people in the world was was Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, it, it caused it, the, the movement to be very hamstrung, I, I think, uh, in that they were afraid to move, to go out of the camps, 
Um, they didn't try like seizing offices. Like they didn't try like seizing Wall Street buildings or anything. They didn't try to you know fuck like they didn't like whenever the cops would attack them, they wouldn't like defend themselves. Um, whenever the cops would try to invade the the tents, they would like nothing. Like they would just let it happen. It, it they lacked the radicalism necessary for this type of movement to like actually function. Um, and that that was probably the the main takeaway. That people learned was that like if you're gonna do this kind of stuff, you need like like a, you need people who are willing to go that to go that extra mile to like go just like okay, we occupied a park like a public park, um, or we're making a lot of noise, but like how about we go into those people's offices and like just start fucking like making their job impossible, like literally impossible, um, much like you know people are doing with ICE right now where they're occupying the offices, they're not just staying in a park somewhere. Um, just making it somewhat annoying to be around. Um, they're actually disrupting the the processes of the state and capital. Um, you know that 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 was probably the biggest uh, negative of the whole thing, and just why it kind of just fell apart at the end. You know, I agree with you. I remember occupied Milwaukee, where they were camping out next to the cooperative tavern that was away from downtown. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? What kind of direct action is this? Yeah, I think it's cool that you're showing solidarity, what's going on in other parts of the country. But if you're going to make fundamental change, you're not going to do it in a park surrounded by a neighborhood, which everybody already agrees with what you're trying to say, and which is away from the power structure. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're going to do that kind of shit, like, if you're going to do that, like, do it, like, in front of, like city hall and then when you have numbers take city hall i mean it's again like that's what occupy ice portland is doing and that's why it's like such a big thing right now and that's why like they've been able to shut down the 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 ice office in portland for like a week now so and, and, that, and that's that's a fuck ton more than like fucking occupy wall street did let's be honest way more way more let's talk about that let's get a little deeper into what occupy ice in portland what is what when did they start What's happening? So Occupy ICE um, is this movement that started um, kind of spontaneously in Portland um, where um, a coalition of organizations like Direct Action Alliance, um, the DSA in Portland, uh, DSA Portland, um, a few other groups and individuals, um, they created a, a, a protest um, against the separation of families um, that was brought in by Donald Trump, even though it's already been happening. Um, it's something that's happening at the border, like immediately, uh, kind of child attention, like basically child concentration camps. Um, <laughs> so, uh, there was this protest and then like, uh, at one point they realized, oh, we have like enough people to like occupy this space. So they democratically decided that's what they're going to do. They're going to, they, they set up tents. Um, they set up tents on the street on the other side, I think if I remember correctly. Um, and then they kind of put the word out. It's like, okay, we're doing this. Um, we need people. We need supplies. Um, for more, more of all, we need like wood pallets and like basic leftover furniture for barricades um, in order to like shut this down. And as more people came by, they, they moved into blocking the, the van entrance and then they moved over to blocking the main entrance. And then they moved to blo- – when they had more people, they blocked the, uh, the tram, uh, the rail tram uh, entrance. Um, and then they shut down the back entrance and then like once they had all that down, they started building barricades just in case the police tried to move in. 
um, they at least had a little bit of time to you know get people woken up and everything. Um, and now it's like there's a whole like a camp of like 80 plus people in Portland now just like holding down the office and they've shut it down. Like I said before, like they've actually successfully disrupted dysfunctions of the state. Um, they're not going to have any um, like that. That I, the office hasn't had any you know immigration hearings. They haven't um, been able to send out vans. They haven't been able to do anything. Um, all the people have been told to stay. Ho- all the people who work there have been told to stay ho- uh, stay home. Um, I think right now there's also I think two other ones. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's L.A. and New York mm-hmm. um, are also trying to do this, and they are slowly growing in numbers. And they are uh, again like uh, doing that tactic of slowly encroaching as they get more people to again the the core uh, thing here is disrupt the state, uh, not just stay in a little bubble, hoping that by making noise they can get attention to issues. It's like, no, they're actively doing things. So that gives me a couple questions for you. A, I don't think that the end game is probably just to occupy the ICE building. What is the end game? And then let's be honest, how can this shit go wrong? Okay, so the end game actually, like Portland, uh, the Portland encampment um, put out like a kind of like a mission statement, like why they're there and like what they want. Um, they were pretty clear, like uh, they want ICE out of Portland. They want ICE. Uh, they want an end to the deportations in Portland. They want like basically they want like ICE to like cease to exist um, in their area and 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 broadly overall. Um, but again, like it, there's there's like the kind of the long the big shot, which is abolish ICE um, and its Department of Homeland Security, if you want to be specific. Um, but they also have like the more kind of compromise goals, which is basically with specifically with the city, um, basically bar ICE from entering into the city. Um, the police are going to be allowed to cooperate with ICE, um, basically turn it into a sanctuary city, except like they like, if ICE like vans come into like city limits, they like stop them and tell them to get the fuck out, um, stuff like that. Um, and that's similar to what's happened with the other two encampments. Um, so that's like the end goal, I guess you can call. But and, and the things that can go wrong, um, lots of things can go wrong in, in these type of movements. Uh, things can like internal pressures can happen, like you know, uh, personalities start rubbing up against each other and cause tensions. Uh, um, like um, like without a real uh, like grievance and harassment procedure uh like things like uh sexual assault or harassment can like destroy the whole thing like like one single event can not only ruin one purpose like one person's life um it can just destroy the whole thing and the whole thing will uh, fall apart um if if the police um really want if they're not like ready the police can just come in and arrest everyone like they did in san diego there there's a lot of things that can go wrong to be honest and that that we, we should acknowledge that and um, I think that's one of the main things that uh, the, the left in general has learned from Occupy is, okay, we need to be a lot more militant and we need to be a lot more ready uh, just for like the, in case shit goes wrong. Yeah, because I was thinking you're going to get police informants, infiltrators trying to get involved. Now, granted, I would say these organizations probably know their membership a lot better than what happened in Occupy Wall Street. So yeah, you they're know, a lot more organized. Exactly. So you're not going to get, oh, yeah, I'm just down with the cause, and it turns out to be a pig. Um, So that's probably not going to happen as much. But one of the things I'm fearful of in Trump's America is just the use of state violence against people. 
Oh yeah, I mean that's what I, I'm surprised like that hasn't happened. Like they haven't like tried to like ram a like a police truck into the barricades in Portland yet. I, I'm surprised. Um, I know in San Diego they had they just arrested everyone who was there, um, and luckily they're out on bail now. Um, but you know it, it's going to come. I mean they already issued. I mean at the time of this recording they've already issued like the and then noticed to vacate the premises uh, to Portland. So we don't know how long that's going to take before the cops um, start coming in. Or hell, even like federal police. Uh, because, it's, again, like ICE is a federal agency, so they might bring in the federal police. So we don't know. Obviously, we're both in favor of the movement that's going on there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> just put that out there. Be clear on Front Street. But there's a lot of, a lot of cards that got to play out. Byron, you're going to keep us posted on this, right? Yes. Uh, if you want to follow, um, the, it's, uh, ha- the, the main hashtag is uh, hashtag Occupy Ice. Um, there's Occupy Ice LA, Occupy Ice uh, New uh, NYC, Occupy Ice uh, PDX. Those are like the main three. If you really want to follow it, so I recommend you do. <laughs> awesome. So follow those hashtags. We'll keep you posted as always because we're awesome like that. And um, thank you for your time, Byron. Thank you. Hey, Byron. Hey, how are you? I am fantastic because today we are going to talk about Worker co-ops. Yay! I, I can, I can, I can hear like Richard Wolf. Like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like perking up as as we said those words. I think he's actually knocking outside my window as we speak. <laughs> yeah, I love that guy. But he loves worker co-ops more than he loves anything else. But for what good reason, really? Oh yeah, I mean, like worker cooperatives are like. A, I mean, incredibly interesting, like both in like their function and their history. Well, you know, for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the worker co-op model, what is a worker co-op? So a worker cooperative is essentially um, imagine where you – okay, so I want our listeners to imagine where they work. Um, imagine uh, you have uh, basically told your boss to fuck off, uh, and essentially now you run the business democratically with your fellow coworkers. Like that essentially is a work cooperative. It's um, a cooperative, cooperatively owned and cooperatively run uh, workplace. At least that's the legal definition for the U.S. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things where. It has a lot – the model has a lot of flexibility according to what the needs of your organization. So if you have a Windows manufacturing co-op, it's going to look a lot different than if you are a tech cooperative. Um, but – and you can modify the model to what serves your, your needs essentially. And that's why I love about worker co-ops. I can nerd out on worker co-ops days upon days upon days upon days and binge watch Richard Wolf and then look at Gar Alpovitz. I'm like, hmm, yeah, okay, fun. Yeah, that's right, kind of. But 
it's to me super exciting and it's essentially I like to say building socialism in our time. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean because like at the core of like the worker cooperative movement, the solidarity economy, um, like solidarity economy movement, um, that kind of makes up it, um, is like the idea that like, okay, like we want to achieve a different type of economy, a different type of like, uh, political economy. So how do we do that? Okay. So one thing we could definitely do like right now, um, without like having to, you know, start a civil war, um, is, is, uh, creating worker cooperatives, um, which are like historically, like very successful and very efficient. Uh, primarily, I mean, um, like whatever you have uh, any type of uh, system where the workers can self-manage, can basically run the factory on their own. They don't need anyone uh, kind of micromanaging or doing any pulling any bullshit. Because let's be honest, if, any, if if anyone who's listened has worked a job, they know the boss usually makes things worse rather than make things better. Um, <laughs> so. So it, it allows uh, people to kind of envision a future where, okay, like, see, like, we don't need bosses to, like, run all this stuff. We can do it on our own. So, like, why the fuck are they, like, why do bosses even exist at this point, like, I, like as a system? Uh, and it really kind of introduces uh, those kind of seedlings of kind of so my actual socialist thought rather than like social demo like social demo like democratic let's just have the government do everything um kind of stuff well while still maintaining the capitalist relations so it, it's very much a a leader in kind of real change in the now i agree um to me there's so many pros to this it, like it outweighs what cons Maybe, but let's talk about that. Let's kind of break down, all right, the worker cooperative model and getting rid of the boss and the workers owning their own means of production. Let's look at the pros to that, and then let's look at some of the cons and and address those. So, Byron, throw me a pro. All right, well, one pretty big pro like uh that i mentioned before was the fact that like there's no boss and be usually because of that um usually because the workers know how to run the business or whatever like usually better than the boss (laughs) because they actually interact with it um it's usually more efficient like it is like there's there's a good number of studies out there that have shown like yeah worker cooperatives are like a a far more efficient system mainly because everyone has like a vote and decision making power so they're more motivated That's a great pro. Here's another pro. I feel, for me, what's important in a workplace is that there's an overriding principle of fairness baked into the model. And when when I was working in a capitalist institution, it was this top-down, whatever the boss wants, the boss gets. If the boss likes it, I have to love it, attitude, or I have to get the fuck out and... You know, find another job. The seven principles of cooperatives. Each organization has to be self-reliant. It has to help out other cooperatives. It has to operate on the one-person, one-vote model. It has to be voluntary. Those people who are in the cooperative, they have to voluntarily be a part of it. And they can opt out as well. Um, 
and it has to be um, equitable to all people. That's kind of the overarching principles in a nutshell. And I, I adore those. I think every workplace should have that. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's like kind of a, a no-brainer for, for, for a good amount of them. And the rest are like, yeah, this is like a basic kind of humanitarian thing to do. <laughs> so, all right. I think, the, like, like I said, the pros are just fucking all over the place. Every time I discuss with somebody out in the real world, I shouldn't say in the real world. It's always actually other socialists. People in the real world, whether they're conservative or kind of middle of the road, and you explain, oh, guess what? It's a a type of organization where you get to fire the bosses because you are the boss. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People are generally like, yeah, all right, that's cool. Right on. It's usually other socialists, anarchists or communists who have, well, um, that might be so, but so... I would like to address maybe some of the cons, supposed cons of the system. Like, I always hear when someone talks negatively about worker cooperatives. Well, aren't you self-exploiting yourself? Yes, because the, the assumption is, um, and, and, you know, because, it, it, like, one of the, the bases is, like, with worker cooperatives is that you're ultimately still participating in, like, the capitalist, like the greater capitalist economy, um, because while you may be a worker cooperative, everyone else isn't. Um, so it kind of leads to this kind of competition between the worker cooperative and like big mega corporations um, that can lead, uh, or hell, even other worker cooperatives, where it leads the work, like the, the members of the worker cooperative to ex- like kind of work harder and faster, more efficient to the point where like they're literally self-exploiting themselves. Like they're making their own job even more difficult just to keep up with the, just to keep up with like the inefficiencies of trade. Exactly. That's the argument that I've heard. I say, man, that's a, you're doing, you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to come up with that kind of bullshit. And this is why you can't, exploit yourself because yourself has to give consent to whatever you're doing and when you have a say at the table and you choose to take on extra work because you're trying to make something succeed you can't that's not exploitation you can't self-exploit now i understand when they're talking about well you're still kind of competing against a bunch of other capitalist organizations but this is where the worker cooperative model is magic. You don't have to compete. You have to meet the needs of your constituents. You are providing a service. And in there, there's no, comp- there's no competition. You're running your own race. And if you're going to look to the left or right at anything, you're looking to cooperate. How can you do what you're doing much more efficiently with the help of other cooperatives. And if you are operating with that mindset, if you're a cooperative of operating in that, of that mindset, then you're not in a rat race. Now, if you're trying to be the biggest, baddest corporation on the planet, and, you know, you have a big fucking office and a big suit with, you know, big shoulder pads, 
well, okay, yeah, now you're trying to play the capitalist game. But the minute you kind of stay in your own lane and operate in the service of whatever your, your clients are, your member owners, um, your worker owners, you win. That's my rant on that. I don't know. But <laughs> it's, that, it's a good rant. <laughs> thank you. Because just for me, that's one of those things that just pisses me off when I hear that one. A lot of the other ones are some of the cons are like, well, you know, the business may fail. Then yeah, what? because it's still ultimately participating in a capitalist economy. Yeah, you're practicing, you're practicing, yeah, you're participating in a capitalist economy or you are, let's be honest, like organizations fail for various reasons. Whether it's a capitalist organization or an anti-capitalist organization, I don't see a problem with that. If you have a fucked up, you know, cooperative, maybe you should break up so the people who are working in there, the worker owners, can do something different. If you are a sexist cooperative, which, uh, let's be honest, as much as we think the, the systemic issues are taken care of, but there's going to be individuals who suck. If that goes by the wayside, I don't shed a tear. But I don't think I don't think it's the worker co-op problem that oh well we just gotta we can't we can't do these or I'm skeptical I'm specious about worker co-ops I'm like what are you left with Yeah I mean like yeah I mean like and and there's always that criticism like oh worker cooperatives um, can never be successful it's like okay there's literally an entire like kind of federation of co- work cooperatives in Spain that is successful. It's called Mondragon. It's like one of the, one of the largest like uh, producers of like, and they produce everything and they're very, uh, they're basically a federation of multiple worker cooperatives um, that kind of work together to kind of push this kind of ideology, um, which, you know, has, is one of uh, Spain's like largest, uh, like they contribute so much to like GDP. Like it's, like, like it, it can't work. Um, like, and hell, even here in the U.S., like, work cooperatives are responsible for like millions of dollars um, of you know of the economy. So, like, I mean, it, it is possible. It's just the main difficulty of actually forming one. It, it's mainly because of the difficulty of forming one. I feel like is because banks are very unwilling to like loan out money. This is non traditional corporation method. Um, so banks get really freaked out about that. Like about that risk um, because there isn't as much profit as they think it, uh, as I think it is. Um, And then also uh, like once you get that, like it's difficult to like get started up. But once you get like once, but once you get through like through those hurdles, um, it's fairly smooth sailing. Exactly. Um, The problem with starting any organization, capitalist or, non-capitalist, anti-capitalist, there is the idea you have to have capital, whatever that is. And um, you're right. But I will say, and I'm gonna, let me clarify, you're right that finance is a problem. Fortunately, there are a lot of people working on alternative methods of financing for cooperatives and there are credit unions who are themselves cooperatives that understand that model and are willing to lend. The problem is, as of such, um, credit unions, by law, 
you know, only have so much capital that they can lend out. And that's kind of where that money bottleneck happens. Another successful area, region in the world where cooperatives dominate is the Emilia-Romagna region of Italy. Oh, yeah. Like, Bologna has been run by communists for generations. And I think at least a third of their economic activity is um, cooperatives. They're worker cooperatives. Exactly. And Bologna has always been known as one of the richer regions, more stable regions of Italy. And I kind of wonder why. Because people aren't being exploited. Instead of just rambling on about cooperatives and how bitching and awesome they are, do you have any final thoughts on the worker cooperative model? Um, yeah, if, if you're interested in maybe forming one, I know one of my comrades uh, who's moving to Philly is like he's he's uh, creating a uh, like a bar co-op <laughs> uh, with his uh, old friend with an old friend of his. Um, there's there's you know many organizations that you can reach out to um, who will help you in kind of forming up the model, uh, kind of understanding the model, in like helping you connect with the uh, getting uh, the like starting capital um, to get it up and running. Um, then to help you out, like as you're kind of forming it up, uh, there is Richard Wolf's. There is Richard Wolf's uh, Democracy at Work, which is really good, a uh, really good website. Uh, also, that kind of has a lot of good starting information, so you can head on there to. So you can head over to democracyatwork.info uh, for more information. It's it's really cool. <laughs> like Richard Wolf, like he's. Uh, people have disagreements up with him every once in a while. Um, it's that's the case with any Marxist academic, but uh, he's actually going out and like doing shit, which is like so. Which is actually pretty fucking cool because like that's the thing academics really do. Yeah, he he really is making a difference, and he kind of in some ways created his own like media empire. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Yeah, like he fell ass first into that. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, but thank you, Byron. I think that was rather informative and then hopefully it gets some people fired up of finding their own boss and creating a worker co-op. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be the next thing in, uh, in the, in the UK because, uh, Jeremy Corbyn has this, uh, this thing, uh, this one bill he really wants passed called the right of first refusal, which if your boss wants to sell off the business, uh, the workers have the first, uh, have uh, the first choice, the first uh, choice of whether or not to buy it and turn it into a cooperative. So, I mean, going forward, it, it's cooperatives are like the future. If you don't want like a civil war and a lot of people dying, <laughs> that's kind of the, that's how that's the uh, short end of it. It is the future, the short end of it. Thank you, Byron. come to the end of another episode I would like to invite you to follow us on Twitter at movement underscore color and support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash movement of color my name is Brandon Payton Carrillo until next time adios <laughs>